This is a Kitty Pod production. Welcome to CR Crime, the only podcast that deals with stories of true crime from New York's capital region. I'm your host, Jason Bullitt. This week, we celebrate back to school season with a look at a rather intelligent student who gained his smarts in familiar murder. Wiley Gates. The Columbia County town of Chatham was founded in 1795 with land formed from the neighboring towns of Canaan and Kinderhook. Beneath its current exterior, Chatham was surprisingly a rail hub tucked away in the northeastern corner of the county in the early 20th century, with the New York Central Railroad's Harlem Line sending riders south to New York City, the Boston and Albany sending passengers east to Boston, and the Rutland Railroad providing access to Vermont. These days, Amtrak's Lakeshore Limited goes through the heart of town but does not stop there to drop off or pick up passengers. Even though Amtrak has announced plans to build the station and return passenger rail service there for the first time in half a century, those plans haven't yet been realized in recent years. But enough talk about trains. You've come here for true crime, and we'll start by getting off at the hamlet of East Chatham and having a look at the perpetrator. Born around 1969 to Richard Sr. and Christy Gates, Wiley Gates was an honor student at Chatham High School who lived in a log cabin on Maple Drive in a secluded part of the town of Canaan near the Massachusetts state line. The son of an auto repair shop owner, he was slated to be the salutatorian of his graduating class, played cornet in the school band, and was very good with computers. Your narrator's high school experience, but substitute flute for cornet and a lower ranking. Still good, though. Hashtag bees get degrees. According to one of Wiley's uncles, He spent an inordinate amount of time with computers, oftentimes forgetting to eat or sleep. Sounds like most folks these days, except the computers are smaller and directly in front of our faces. Despite all this, Gates was a loner, a socially awkward type who hid a deep-seated hatred towards his parents. Christie had divorced the elder Gates in 1976, moving to California and thus leaving Richard to tend to the brood. While all that was going on, in mid-September 1985, Dane and Georgia Gates, Wiley's uncle and aunt respectively, were killed when their car went off Peaceful Valley Road in the town of Canaan, ran into some trees, and burst into flames. A third passenger, Richard Palmer, was also killed. Jason Gates, Wiley's cousin, was both left in critical condition and at the same time was rent an orphan at all of two years of age and sent to live at Wiley's house. Before murdering his kin, the bespectacled Gates decided to use his knowledge of computers, when they were different compared to nowadays, to help gain him experience. One month earlier, on November 15th, Gates broke into Chatham High School and sneaked into the computer room. He and two other accomplices, Damian Rosny and Miles McDonald, were huge fans of the role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons, and set up a program almost similar to D&D called Inferno, or Infierno, to help plan the murder by honing what the two termed their assassination skills. With all that in mind, Gates and his henchmen were ready to do their bloody business 
and get quite the payday in the process. It was 7 o'clock on the evening of December 13, 1986. Yet another quiet Saturday night in the Taconic Mountains. It was about a week and a half before Christmas, but Wiley Gates and his two Confederates weren't exactly playing Santa Claus. If they were, they were about to deal out the gift of... murder. Thank you, Keith Morrison. After dinner that night, Gates brandished a Walther PPK 380 semi-automatic pistol akin to what policemen towed around on duty and fired off 15 shots. Gates gunned down Robert, his live-in girlfriend Cheryl Brom, 36, his stepmother and the aforementioned nephew. All four were later found dead. The weapon in question was stolen from a mock burglary nine days earlier. After ransacking the house, Gates and his accomplices took some of the bloodied items, stuffed them into a sack, and drove off in a car borrowed from Brom to the Crandall Theater in Chatham where the Clint Eastwood film Heartbreak Ridge was playing. According to eponymous Rox's book Dungeons, Dragons, Murder, this was part of a multi-pronged operation, the first part of which was to pull off of Schilling's Crossing Road at the top of a hill park the car, and dump out the stolen goods. At this time, Gates noticed that the recoil from the pistol during target practice at a nearby farm a week earlier had caused a small cut on his left thumb. He would have to take care of it before setting off to the cinema. According to Rocks, no relation to Patrick Rocks from our Gangsters of Saratoga Springs series two months ago, so far as can be made out, Gates had a three-part method to stage two. He would establish an airtight alibi, ditch the Walther pistol, and then set up McDonald and Rossney for the fall, all while waiting for a big payday on account of the murder. $100,000 to be exact. It should be noted that McDonald wisely wound up backing out of the scheme. Gates arrived at Rossney's house, northeast of the Gates' residence in sight of the murder, got a band-aid from the bathroom, and drank a toast from the last drinks of a liquor bottle stolen from the latter building. Damien Rossney, Gates' accomplice, was a transplant from downstate. His parents feared that he would become a hardened criminal and move the family to the Columbia County countryside to get him out of the habits. However, it turns out being forced to mingle among rednecks to rid a budding criminal of his habits didn't help the cause any iota. On December 15th, one day before your narrator's fourth birthday, Gates and Rossney were arrested and charged with eight counts of second-degree murder, one for each victim. Feelings of shock and outrage usually come when crimes like these occur in small-town America, and the Chatham and Canaan communities were no exception. The teachers at Chatham High School led the way in expressing shock over the crime, with then-high school principal Wes Brown left to say, It's unbelievable, end quote. Truer words were never spoken. On January 30, 1987, Gates and Rossney were arraigned in Columbia County Court. County District Attorney Gene Keeler stated that the two were arraigned separately and after only three minutes, Gates was remanded to the Columbia County Jail in Hudson without bail. However, Rossney was ordered held on $650,000 bail. 
The trial of Wiley Gates began in mid-August of 87, with Judge John Lehman presiding. James Bertram, the county undersheriff, headed the investigation and used a mishmash of notes and interrogations of state troopers and county sheriff's deputies, all collected with neither Gates' lawyer's knowledge or presence. Perhaps more galling, the weapon used was neither dusted for fingerprints, nor did the bloodstain test provide any conclusive results. Also, Gates's jacket was not tested for gunpowder residue. The jury took all this into account when deliberating the verdict, doing so even after electricity was cut off during the infamous snowstorm of October 4th. Your narrator and his family were in the dark for the better part of a week, but that's all by the by. In the end, Gates was acquitted of murder on October 7th, leaving Chatham residents surprised and somewhat in shock. However, by the same token, they didn't exactly lay the blame at the prosecution's feet. Blanche Borup, then the Canaan town clerk, said the jury got the short end of it. According to the New York Times, Borup said that, quote, most people wonder how a jury could come back with a verdict like that, end quote. Those who wanted O.J. Simpson guilty 25 years ago could have told her as much. She needed only to ask. However, Gates wasn't fully out of the woods. He was found guilty of conspiracy to commit the murders and given the maximum sentence of 8 and a third to 25 years at state prison in Elmira. Given the asshattery on the part of law enforcement, a second trial was ordered and began towards the end of 1988. This time, Damian Rossney was the focus, and the objective was to get him to admit that Gates was the trigger man. Rossney, who had previously been released on bond with the help of friends and family, flipped and blamed Gates for the murders. During closing arguments, Richard Adams spoke for the defendant and stated that Gates had joked about committing the murder, and Rossney only hid the weapon to protect himself. Furthermore, Adams said that the defense team wasn't allowed to use Gates' confession as evidence because the latter's acquittal the previous year weakened the case against Rosney. For her part, Nancy Snyder, the special district attorney representing the prosecution, argued that Rosney helped filch the weapon used in the murder. Like Gates before him, Damian Rosney was acquitted of murder but found guilty of conspiracy, hindering prosecution and criminal facilitation. And also like Gates, he was sentenced to the max term of eight and a third to 25 years in state prison, being sent to the Woodbourne Correctional Facility in Sullivan County. After serving over a decade and a half in prison, Wiley Gates was released on August 11, 2003 with a college degree under his belt and a job at a New York City law firm waiting for him, he was released from Department of Corrections and Community Supervision, DOCS custody, at the Buffalo bus station after finishing his sentence at the Collins Correctional Facility in western New York. Gates remained under parole supervision until August 2011. Over a year later, Damian Rosney was also released from prison. His parole ended in November 2013, and he had been granted parole in August, but was allowed to have an open release date. Rosney now works in IT, believe it or not. Gene Keeler remained the Columbia County District Attorney until he lost the position in November of 2019. 
his failure to convict Gates of murder in the first trial back in 1987 had been the millstone around his neck. With his opponents bringing it up in every election debate since the late 1980s and ultimately costing him his position in the long run. Keeler admitted to the Albany Times Union between trials that the Gates trial cost him $15,000 in clients from his side hustle as a real estate attorney. Going so far as to offer this philosophical reflection, if you were buying a house during the Gates trial, would you call Gene Keeler? End quote. My answer would be hells no. Ironically, Paul Zyka, to whom Keeler lost that election last fall, briefly represented Gates at his trial before the latter sought and found his own counsel. Smart move. Thanks for listening to this episode of CR Crime, the only podcast that deals with tales of true crime from New York's capital region. This podcast is written, produced, narrated, and edited by yours truly, Jason Bullitt, also host of the Keep It To Yourself podcast, of which this is an offshoot. If you like this podcast, you can review this and my other podcast, in fact, the whole feed, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcatcher of your choosing. Or better yet, tell a friend and those in your circle. That's the best way that podcasts help get promoted and get more listeners. Until next week, stay safe out there. Bye-bye.